Amen. Well, if you're going to participate in Big Kid City, head towards the back. Uh, for the rest of us, uh, open up a copy of Scriptures to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be uh, continuing on in this uh, new series that we have started where we are walking in worship. We're going to be picking up in verse 7 of chapter 4, so turn with me there because that's where we are going to be uh, this morning, where we are going to be learning from the Word of God. Sawyer this week, uh, my wife uh, took our, uh, our boys actually to the doctor, as uh, one might do. Nothing was wrong with them. It's just that annual checkup where they did all the things. They got the tongue depressor, the, you know, whacked them in the knees a little bit to make sure that their reflexes were there, the cold stethoscope. Henry got shots. They did the uh, light in the ear thing, which I can only presume is them checking on the growth of their brains. They did all of the things. But the one thing that like I as a dad, for whatever reason, probably not positive reasons, was concerned about to hear about when my boys got home from the doctor was, where are they on the scale? Well, how, uh, how are they measuring up to all of the other kids? Because what the doctors do from the day that they are born is actually uh, getting their weight and their length or height uh, and putting that into some equation, some magical equation that tells you how they're comparing with all of the other kids. And uh, that's the body mass index and uh, where they are in terms of percentages. Uh, so that's what they did uh, the other day. And one of the reasons why I, I you know, uh, why I want to hear about that is not just, you know, to see how they're up, but make sure that uh, they're growing. Make sure that they're not lagging behind. Uh, and I think that maybe there's like this residue in the back of my mind that like I learned about something really frightening to me that like the day that Jackson was born, I was like, oh, that's interesting. There's this graph and, uh, you know, there's these uh, edges where they're supposed to be falling within the line graph and everything. Uh, why is that? My wife is a uh, registered nurse and she said, oh, that's because uh, there are some infants that fail to thrive. Uh, oh, because of like, uh, you know, infections or disease or like, you know, some sort of genetic thing. Well, yeah, sometimes, but there is a thing called uh, failure to thrive that is non-organic. It's just a failure to thrive. And I was like, that sounds dangerous and really frightening. And I don't want it for my kids. I don't want for them to fail to thrive, to have the inability to grow up. It sounds scary and dangerous. Uh, orphanages uh, in, in the last century that we just came out of, especially in communist countries, experienced an uh, alarmingly high death rate. Uh, in the old Eastern Bloc countries, there would have been uh, infant mortality rates in the 30 to 40 sometimes even more than that percent of kids would actually die in orphanages. And, and some of that was due to the fact that they weren't receiving adequate medical care or the appropriate amount of food. But uh, as they came in and started doing studies afterwards, they found, no, there were actually quite a few orphanages that would uh, provide appropriate medical care. They would provide enough food for kids to thrive. But what was happening is, is that those orphanages were so overwhelmed that the kids uh, wouldn't get touched. They wouldn't receive any sort of love and affection, and these kids would fail to thrive, even to the point of death sometimes, simply because they were not receiving the love and tender care that they needed. Humans need to experience the love of others, or we will not even make it out of infancy. We won't even make it out of infancy. And this is something that I think that uh, Paul knows because he actually writes about this failure to thrive here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. He, he says in verse 14, before we read this, that uh, he's writing to us so that we may no longer be children. 
In fact, if you want to do the, the Greek uh, etymology there, the word is probably more appropriate, tra- appropriately translated infants. He is writing to us that we may no longer be infants. Paul says that we enter spiritual life as infants. We're going to talk a little bit more about that, but that he doesn't want us to fail to thrive. So what I want for us to do is to have that in mind as we begin reading in verse 7. Look with me here. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended to the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined together, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. The main point I think that Paul is getting at here this morning is actually a pretty simple one. What Paul is telling us to do is grow up. This is a pretty simple uh, main point this morning, that we are to grow up, but we're to grow in a specific way. We're supposed to grow up in God's gracious gifts. And in order for us to kind of understand what Paul is on about here in growing up in these gracious gifts, we have to understand three things. We have to understand three things about these gracious gifts that we are given. Where do they come from? Who are they for? And what do the gifts do? So that's what we're going to be kind of dealing with this morning. Where do our gifts come from? Have you ever thought about like, hey, where do my gifts come from? I don't want to take that for granted. I think that all of us have kind of like a, I don't know, maybe a uh, amorphic uh, understanding of like, I think that I've got these gifts and skills. And, uh, but have you ever really thought like, where specifically do my gifts come for? I think that there are three ways that we can kind of think about this. We can think about our gifts being uh, perceived, achieved, and uh, received, okay? Uh, perceived inwardly, achieved outwardly, or received graciously. That's what I think that we need to think through in terms of how do we get these gifts? Where do they come from? The, the idea of them perceiving inwardly uh, means that they always existed inside of you, that maybe the gifts that you have, if you look inside of yourself, are the real you. This is kind of more the, the nature argument, nature versus nurture. This is, you have gifts inside of you. And so if you look inwardly, you will find out what those are. I think that this is good. Humans obviously are wired with certain uh, natural skills and aptitudes. All of us know somebody who just seems to get it. 
who seems like uh, really intelligent. School was not an issue for them, and it just comes naturally for them. It's, it's an inward gift. It's just something that was wired into them, a natural skill or aptitude. And uh, the good is, is that I think that we actually thrive as human beings in discovering those things and actually working those things out. However, there is something that's kind of lacking, I think, in just seeing our gifts as something that if we look inside of ourselves, we'll find those things, we'll be able to work those things out. Have you ever wondered whether or not you're using your right gifts? I think, uh, for me, I think back, uh, when I'm thinking about perceiving my inward gifts, I think about, like, when I was a kid. What was the things that I, like, naturally gravitated towards? I was actually a really artistic kid. That, for those of you who don't know me, that's hysterical. I was in, like, drama. I liked painting. I liked drawing. But I didn't foster any of those things. And I've gotten to adulthood and wondered, maybe I could have been a really good artist. Maybe not. I don't know, but it was one of those things that I like perceived inside of myself, and there's this sense in which that I've got, man, maybe I focused a little bit too much on these other gifts. Maybe I missed out on my real calling. Have you ever felt that way, just in terms of looking at the gifts that maybe you had inwardly and wondering whether or not you, were, uh, you missed them, or maybe you were undisciplined to truly foster them? What's hard about that, I think, is, is that the human heart is so divided. It's so diverse in the things that, like, capture our attention. In some ways, when you look inwardly, I'm not sure that you get a really good picture of who you are because at the end of the day, you might have had a lot of interests, a lot of gifts, but who you end up becoming is based on the gifts that you chose to foster and not others. Have you ever thought about maybe if you just took you and all of your natural inclinations and put you into a totally different culture, maybe you would have fostered those things. Well, would that have been the right you? In some sense, it's hard to just look inwardly because there are these divided desires inside of ourselves. Even today, we choose to foster some and not others in different uh, times of our lives. Maybe you went off to college and you had this desire, like when you went into a philosophy class, your heart sung. You were just like, I love thinking about really deep things, but I know it's not going to pay the bills and I'm okay at math, so I'm going to get the degree in accounting or I'm going to get the degree in engineering. Maybe there's just something there in terms of that dividedness. For, for a lot of us, we do this in terms of like seasons of our lives. For many of us in this, you know, uh, days where we have young kids in the home, we put down uh, careers, we put down maybe even relationships for the good of fostering uh, our young ones. We choose to emphasize different gifts at different points in time. So it's not, I don't think you're going to get a full picture of your gifts if you just perceive them inwardly. So we also try to achieve them outwardly. So it's not just a nature thing, it's a nurture thing. With all the hard work and dedication, maybe you'd be able to hone your expertise, your reputation, build it around some gifts that you have. Now, this one, too, I think is good because I think that humans were made for and thrive in cultivating accomplishments in their lives, cultivating and looking for uh, the gifts that you have and actually uh, looking to foster those things into a creative force in your life. But there too, those things are a little fleeting. Because what if you decide to build your, uh, build your gifts and achievement by working really, really hard, and then you become incapacitated in some way? Maybe you spent all of your years growing up trying to be the best dancer on earth. Maybe you wanted to be an NFL star, and maybe it was just uh, there was a limitation to that achievement. Maybe it was just that you had an injury of some kind, and it totally took you out of that thing that you were trying to achieve as part of your gift. Uh, in some way, 
looking for achievement, actually nurturing gifts is a really, really positive thing, but at the end of the day, you might find yourself in a place where you have this pressure to perform and achieve that is outsized to the actual gifting that you have. So we could perceive them inwardly, we could try to achieve them outwardly, but I think that what the verses are saying this morning is that a better way of looking at them, not the only way, but a better way of looking at them is that they are received graciously. We're not just looking uh, to the things inside of ourselves or working on the things outside of ourselves, but we're receiving things from above. Verse 7, look with me. It says that grace was given to whom? To each one of us according to Christ's gift. And in some ways, I just feel like there is this pressure around our giftings, and this relieves the pressure in my heart when I think about giftings. What a relief. You don't have to live up to yours or to other people's expectations. It's not just that you're uh, looking at these things in terms of the skills and interests that you have, but it's actually a spiritual gift that God the Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is actually giving to you. You are receiving a gracious gift. You don't have to sort through all of your divided desires. You don't have to compare yourself to others. You merely have to receive your gift faithfully and steward that gift of God graciously. I think that we're receivers of gifts. But specifically, the question that we're trying to answer is, where do your gifts come from? Verse 8 tells us that when He ascended on high, He gave gifts to men. When He ascended on high after His resurrection, when He went into heaven, when Jesus went and ascended to the throne of heaven, He gave gifts at that same time. So, where do your gifts come from? They come from the ascendant Christ. They come from your Christus victor, the victorious Christ, won the war against death, and as He was ascended, ascending into heaven, He takes the spoils of that war and He distributes them as good gifts to us, to us. He's giving us gifts. These are ascension spoils of war that we are receiving. And to you this morning, you might say, me? He's giving me gifts? It says each one of you. There's not one brother or sister in Christ, there's not one person in the church that Jesus did not distribute some gift to. And you might ask the question, how, how big was this? It says that grace was given according to Christ's gift. I think we can take this in two ways. You were given gifts. How big were the gifts? They were according to God's grace, Jesus' grace towards you. In one way, I think that we can take it in terms of the gift of salvation. I really do think that we can take this in terms of salvation. Why? Because way back in chapter 2, verse 4, it tells us that that's at the heart of the gospel, that, um, that there is a gift that is given to us. Starting in verse 4, it says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That's the gift. He made us alive together with Christ by the grace you have been saved, and we were raised up. Pay attention to the same words that are being used here in chapter 4. We were raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. What's the first gift that you get? Jesus' first gift to you is making you alive in Him and raising you up to be seated with Him as a co-conqueror. Jesus the victor, 
has given you gifts, and it has everything to do with Him ushering you into this ascension reality, this ascended kingdom that He has inaugurated. Jesus is first making you alive. You can't know your gifts if you don't know what your first gift was. I'm going to say that again. You can't know if you're focused this morning on uh, the gifts that you have. Well, help me understand, Pastor, what are my gifts? How did I receive them? What are they? That, that you may come out of this uh, slightly disappointed because there is no long list of gifts in this passage that applies to all believers. But what I can tell you is, is that the primary gift that you've been given is being made alive in Christ, and you won't know any of the other gifts that you have received unless you know and understand that the first gift that you got was new life. It was being reborn. It was, as this verse says, being made alive. Where do our gifts come from? They come from the ascendant Christ. But, but now we need to understand who our gifts are for. Similarly, you can't know what your gifts are until you know what your first gift was in new life. You can't know what your gifts are if you don't know who your gifts are meant for. You can't know what your gifts are unless you know who your gifts are meant for. And here's the truth. Every culture in all of human history has some narrative has some uh, way for you to know and understand what your giftings are and know what the object of your gifts are for, know who they are for. Every single culture in all of human history has decided, hey, listen, here's how you need to think about your gifts, and here's how you need to direct them towards human flourishing. If you had been born into the middle of the last millennia, you would have been born probably into a shame and honor culture, either barbarians or uh, Mongols, uh, hordes. They would have hated the Chinese or hated the Romans. They would have gone into those civilizations, and their idea of human flourishing would be a world without the Chinese, without the Romans, and we are going to use your gifts to make sure that that happens. You would have actually been born into a world where your gifts would have been used for uh, clan. Your gifts would have been used in some way to propagate uh, your clan and make sure that you destroyed the other clans. That's how that culture would have told you that you needed to use your gift. The idea of human flourishing would have been smash. It would have been war. Warren Buffett is actually kind of famous for talking about the fact that uh, there's nothing really all that special about him. He got really lucky because his gift, when he looks inwardly, is the ability to understand compounding interest. And he just happened to be born at a time and a place where that was very profitable. If he had been born in any other time in human history, it, would have, it wouldn't have gone well for him, is what he thinks. I think that right now we're in the midst of uh, two competing cultures. We're in a transition period in our culture. We're not a shame and honor culture. We have this uh, traditional culture, an individual culture, and they're kind of competing. The traditional culture would have said, your gifts are not primarily to express you. They're not primarily for you. They're for your family. They're for your community. They're for your nation. That's the traditional culture, and that's what it would have told you to use your gifts for. The, the new culture that we're kind of, that we spent the better part of the last, you know, 50 years really trying to uh, massage into us as a nation is an individualistic culture. It's not a traditional culture. And the individual, uh, individualistic culture is not just different. It's the exact opposite of that. You need to only look towards Pixar movies, Disney movies, to see that the message is no longer use your gifts for the building up of your family, your community, your nation. Now, individual cultures, exactly opposite of that, say that your gifts are only for you. Don't let your family, 
Don't let your creed, don't let your commitments stand in your way of expressing you. Every culture has demands on your gifts, but I would submit to you this morning that every culture may have a little bit right, but it has a little bit wrong also. At at some point, every culture is going to have a disorderedness in their loves and their desires for how you express your gifts, and that is why we as Christians aren't specifically just to live in traditional cultures or individualistic cultures. It's that we're supposed to get this disorderedness prioritized in the right order, so that we aren't prioritizing one gift over another and being exclusive gifts, the new culture that we live in is a kingdom culture where your gifts are not just one-dimensional. They're not just for family. They're not just for you. They're rightly ordered. In the kingdom culture, your gifts are first to honor God, but also to benefit others. And lastly, they are for your enjoyment. Let's explore that a little bit. Your gifts are received from God to honor God. How do we know this? Last week we talked about how it is our goal as Christians to walk in a manner worthy. To walk in a manner worthy of whom? To walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called, and that's faith in Jesus Christ. But if you pay really close attention, this whole passage is really Trinitarian. It talks about how uh, we believe in one Spirit, one Lord, one Father of all, and that we are given these gifts in some sense to honor the Godhead, honor all members of the Trinity the same way that the Trinity honors one another. We're actually meant to and desired to use our gifts to build up more glory for our Father, our Spirit, our Savior Jesus. That's the beginning of our kingdom culture, but it doesn't just end there. Just like the greatest commandment says that we are to love God and love one another, your gifts are also meant to benefit your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you pay attention to this passage, if you look here, you'll find that three times the word body is used. In verse 13, it says, we all, for Texans, maybe that's y'all, all of us, together, we are together, that word is used also, to use our gifts for the building up of one another. Your gifts are not just given to us in order to praise and worship God alone. We are to build one another up. And this is expressing a Trinitarian, a communal gift of serving each other. But lastly, your gifts are not just for God. They are not just for our family in Christ. They are actually for you. We talk a lot in this church about pushing back just a little bit against the uh, kind of uh, modern culture of individualism, but the truth is is that your gifts are given to you for you. Your gifts are for you. God created you to enjoy exercising your gifts, and it's for your good. It's it's no mystery. It's no cosmic accident that you have gifts. In, In a world devoid of a God, if you live in a world where you say, I live in a world without God, the gifts that you have are arbitrary. At best, they're arbitrary. There's some cosmic accident. Maybe even you are deceiving yourself to think that you have any gifts at all in a world apart from God. In a world with God, he's saying, I've given you these ascension gifts. I've given them so that you might, uh, for your good, glorify me so that you might love your brothers and sisters in Christ and that you might enjoy that you might be happy in an ordered kingdom. This kingdom culture wants for you to use your gifts and wants you to actually enjoy them. 
So, we know in some sense where our gifts come from. We know who our gifts are for. But we need to know at some level what are they supposed to do. Now that we know what our gifts uh, are for, we need to better appreciate why we are given them. Specifically, why are we given gifts? What are they meant to accomplish? Verse 15, this is where we get into, I think, the real heart of this text. You remember that spiritual infancy, that childlikeness that you're supposed to grow out of? Verse 15 says that we are to grow up. That's where we get this morning, this primary point. We are to grow up. And it's not just you are to grow up, it's we are to grow up. To get this word picture, we have to understand a little bit about this spiritual life that we are born into. Here's the good news. Remember the chapter uh, 2, verse uh, 15 verse that I read a moment ago where we are made alive? The truth is, is that once you are made alive spiritually, you're alive. But the, the, the thing that I want for us to get this morning is that you're not immediately ushered into spiritual maturity. You're not made alive as a uh, fully grown, mature, spiritual being. You're made alive as an infant. And, and listen, this is one of those, like, uh, I think... Um, it's almost like a divine insult in some sense. When we, when we read through Scripture and we hear us described as sheep, it's not a compliment. The sheep are, yeah, they're cuddly, they're cute, they're white. We look at them and they're like, oh, these things are great. But they're not. They're really not. There's like a divine insult kind of hidden in this that's help, supposed to help us understand who we are. As spiritual infants, we have to be realistic in fact that we're, uh, we're ignorant. We're a little selfish. We're unstable. Why? Because that's the word picture that we're given. Infants are a little ignorant. Now, I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm maybe leaning a little bit into the spiritual language that's used here just so that we can remember it, but infants are pretty ignorant. My, my son, Jackson, I love him. He is really smart for his age for his age. When uh, there was one time, I may have told this story before up here, uh, I was trying to get Ryan, uh, our brand newborn, into the car one day and went and hit the garage door button, and I get Ryan in the car, and I turn around, and my, like, toddler son, barely walking son, has grabbed onto the bottom of the garage door and has ridden it all the way to the top. <laughs> our son was ignorant of gravity. Yeah, he didn't know. He didn't know that if at this age, if he had like, if I had not seen him, if I had not come and gotten him down, he would have fallen and the reality of gravity would have been very real to him. Um, we, we have our niece with us. This She's so amazing. She's wonderful. Yesterday, she also is in this toddler phase. Uh, we go out to a Mexican restaurant that has the real salsa. It's like really actually spicy. And so we're trying to cut up enough beef, you know, from the fajitas for like everybody to get some. And we look over just in time to see that she has taken the queso spoon, which is already spicy, and like not gotten like, not just like dipped it, but like taken a full scoop of like salsa and she's about to put it in her mouth. This would have not gone well. She's an infant. She's an infant. She didn't know that what she was doing, this is all going to make sense here in just a second, okay? <laughs> Infants are selfish. They're, uh, they're aware of their own needs, but they're entirely unaware of what others need. They're unstable, not just physically, but emotionally. Attentively, they're unstable. They're like, I want to look at this shiny toy. I want to look at that shiny toy. And it's okay because they're infants. They're infants. They're infants. 
And, and I want to pause just for one second and just realize that there is something for us to learn here. Since we are born into this spiritual life as infants, Paul says that we're to grow up, but it's important for us to take a moment and see that the truth is that we are all, we all start this spiritual life as infants, and that gives us an opportunity to extend grace to one another. Not just this church, every church is going to be filled with spiritual infants. We're going to be surrounded by people. Have you ever uh, felt affronted by a uh, brother or sister in Christ? Have you ever felt like you saw somebody who was uh, in the body of Christ who was doing something unwise? Maybe this morning you're a pretty new believer and you've walked into the church and you've gone, I can't believe that all this stuff is happening. It seems like people are so immature. That's just part of it. We're born into a spiritual infancy and that's okay we're not allowed to stay there. Christians aren't saved by their level of maturity. Ephesians specifically tells us that we're saved by grace through faith, but to stay an infant, to fail to thrive in this spiritual life is not just dangerous, it's horrible. To stay in infancy, to stay that vulnerable is horrible. It's not okay for us to stay that way. So what am I getting at? We are given gifts so that we might mature together. To spiritual infants who are ignorant, who are, this passage says, look at, with, uh, look at it with me, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. He actually gives gifts. He gives the gifts of apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers, this list, I'm pretty convinced, is not like an exhaustive list of any kind, and I'm actually pretty convinced that it's not about the people. I think it's about the gifts. God, in His grace, looks at spiritual infants who are undiscerning about the spiritual food that they are being fed, and He actually gives some people with some level of understanding give his people the word, to give infants protection, to give his truth, his theology. This verse, I think, would even say his doctrine. To the spiritual infant who is selfish, who's focused on themselves, he puts us in community. He says this, that we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, that we all attain the unity. There is no growing in spiritual maturity alone. There is only bearing with one another. There is only unity. There is only together. There is only we. There is only us. God loves you enough as a spiritual infant to put you into a community of believers. He doesn't leave you alone. Isn't that such good news? It's great news to me that God did not leave me in spiritual, intimacy, or spiritual infancy alone. It's good news to me. I would have made ruin of myself. We even see this in uh, the way that the, the Greek works out. This infants, this, uh, I'm sure, Greek scholars out there, I'm not going to get this one right, but uh, Nepoi. Nepoi is plural, and these Nepoi, these spiritual infants, are becoming one singular mature man. We're becoming one man. I don't want for the, the gender uh, thing to trip anybody up there. It's, he's not after like a, a gender thing. In fact, here in uh, another couple of verses, he's going to use the word bride to communicate to men also. 
In fact, in some ways, he's going to use maybe the deepest analogy that we even have to understand our relationship with him. He's going to use the word bride to talk about men also. These infants are being formed into one mature man. The plural is becoming a unified one. To the spiritual infants who are unstable, he says that our gifts are to build us up into a mature body, and we ask the question, why? To make us strong. How strong? Verse 13 says, to the measure of the fullness of Christ. It continues on to say, we are to grow up into, uh, in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. How strong are we supposed to be together? We're supposed to be as strong and as stable as Jesus. That's what he's trying to do to us, church. He's trying to move us from infancy. He's giving us gifts together that we might achieve a unity and maturity together. That's what God's after. When you think about your gifts, I don't want you primarily even just to think, what are my gifts? How do I need to be expressing these things? I want you to think, God is trying to achieve maturity in me in a unified body. That's what I want you to think of this morning. But, but that's not real practical, okay? I'll be honest. Up until now, we've not been really practical about what this life together looks like, what this unification looks like. I want to get real practical, because I think not because I think it's a good idea, but because I think Paul thinks that it's a good idea. Are there any practical ways that we can apply this? Paul says yes, that we are to be equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. This is very practical. Here's the whole point. If you've, if you've kind of ventured off, I want to give you the whole point of this. Though we have new life in Christ, we will live as spiritual infants until we grow up in God's gracious gifts, and Paul gives us the key to understanding that. Are you ready for the hack? Are you ready for what he's telling us to do? Paul gives us the key not to knowing what your gifts are, but knowing how to use them. Verse 15, rather, Speaking truth in love, speaking truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There's a lot of prepositional phrases there. Let's cut them out just to understand this. Speaking in truth in love makes the body grow. Do you see that? I want you to actually look at Scripture. Speaking truth in love, comma, 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 makes the body grow. Speaking truth in love makes the body grow. Does this sound maybe vaguely familiar to us as we make these transitions into discipleship groups? We are actually betting a lot on the fact that God knows what He's talking about through His servant Paul when He says, speaking truth in love makes the body grow. We want to be uh, growing. We want to be revived in joyful worship here at City Church, and we're betting that God knows what he's talking about when he tells us speaking truth and love makes the body grow. You and I will not grow out of our infancy, our spiritual infancy, unless we are plunged into a community who's using its gifts to reflect the truth of the cross and to reflect the tender sweetness of God's love in our speech. If your gift is hospitality and you know that, 
then the goal of that gift is to gather brothers and sisters in Christ to speak truth and love in a hospitable environment. If your gift is evangelism, then it's to speak truth and love to those who do not yet know Jesus so that they might be brought in and build up the body. If your gift is administration, then it is to organize God's people and His resources to use their gifts to illuminate truth by the power of the Spirit and God's worth and to make a way marked by unconditional love. If you're looking for the life hack on how to use your gifts and how to know what they are, you need to know two words, truth and love. Why, why then, let's be honest with ourselves, why then, that's such a simple thing, right? Speaking truth and love makes the body grow. That's a simple thing to say. It's a hard thing to do. Why, why is it hard for us to find not just that balance, but that symbiosis between love and truth? Why do we find it difficult? Why do most of us find it difficult? Why do most of us find ourselves on one side of that equation or the other? I'm more of a lover. I'm not a fighter. I'm more of a truth teller. Why? I think that something has to do with the motives here, because here's the truth. You can't have one without the other. We, we like to pretend, I'm a truth guy. No, you're not. You have motivations that lead you towards being maybe a little too harsh, uncaring, unloving of people. You don't want to take the time to know and understand their heart motivations, and so that motivates you towards really stark, rigid truths you don't marry it with love. And for those of us who, who tend on the love side of that thing, uh, the, the love side of the giftings, the truth is, is that maybe we just don't have the confidence. We don't have the confidence to speak the truth side of the equation. We love our comfort, and it's really uncomfortable to share truth. Maybe for those of us who tend on the uh, love side of that equation, maybe it's that we're in the middle of trying to build a pretty serious kingdom for ourselves. If we start going around peppering people with truth, they're not going to like us very much. Maybe that's the lie that you feel like you've been told. We can't do it. There's a dependency between love and truth, and we cannot separate them from one another. In a very real sense, you cannot have truth without love, and you cannot have love without truth. And Paul is saying here to us, it is necessary for the building up of the body that we learn, all of us together, how do we speak truth and love to one another? How do we create the space for truth and love in this body? How do you build a discipleship group that from day one, because I guarantee you, if you're not aiming at it, not fully accomplishing it, if you're not aiming at being able to share truth and love, if you're not aiming at the ability to say, hey, let me, let me tell you what I just heard. What I just heard, it was an excuse for something that I think is going to wreck your life. You're making an excuse for the things that uh, you buy, the things that you look at, and I love you too much to let you believe that lie. We need to be speaking truth and love. We don't need to be unwise or withholding or unkind. We need to offer truth. We don't need to be uh, hindered in our ability to really affectionately love and care for others. We need to be a fragrance of life to one another, brothers and sisters. Why? How do I know that the truth and love must come together? Because that is the essence of the gospel. It's the essence of the gospel. 
You cannot understand the gospel unless you understand that God sent truth and love in a person. The gospel is the ultimate expression of truth and love mingled, and they're mingled at the cross. The truth incarnate was crucified to bear the truth of your sin. That's not a palatable thing to say to the world. You're a sinner. And it took the truth, the Word made flesh, it took Him coming and dying. Your sin was so bad that it took the death of God. That's a hard truth. It's a hard truth. But that's married with the fact that His everlasting love of His Father cascaded down like a stream of sacrificial love to you. He loved you so much He was willing to do it. The gospel is the ultimate expression of speaking the words of truth and love and mingling them together in such a beautiful tapestry of His grace that we might receive that and be able to do it with one another. Let the gospel of truth and love drive us towards creating a community of truth and love with one another. Let the gospel of truth and love marinate your gifts the ones that you were given by the resurrected and ascendant Christ, let that truth and love marinate so deeply in you that you are able to take your place in the building of the body into maturity. Since, since I know for a fact that no amount of words from me is going to accomplish that in my heart, and no amount of words this morning is going to accomplish that in our church, I want to pray to those ends. Would you join me? I mean, really, Join me in prayer this morning. Father God, we were born alive in Christ. There is nothing that takes away from that amazing truth. Those of us, uh, every person in this room who is dead in our trespasses was made alive in Christ. You, you made us alive, Father. You did the impossible work of bringing us back from the dead. And we were born into a life of, of infancy. But you are so loving and so generous and so careful of us that you planted us directly in a community of people who are charged to use our gifts to be built into the maturity of Christ. What a powerful message you have for us. What a loving message. What an incredibly different and more amazing story you are telling us about yourself and ourselves than this world could ever try to pin. Lord, we want to believe it in our hearts so badly. I want to, God and Father, I want to believe that so badly. Or would you make it real to me? Would you make it real to us as a church? Would you make it joyful? Father God, help us to know how to use these gifts to speak truth and love. Give us the boldness of the cross to speak truth and love to one another in our marriages, with our families, with our uh, brothers and sisters, with our discipleship groups here in City Church, with people that do not yet know you, would we be bold to speak truth in love that your body may look beautiful and glorious here in Fort Worth, Texas, Father. Only you can accomplish that, and so we are pleading with you for it. Father, we ask it for you, not in our name, not in our merit, Lord, but on the merits of the ascendant Christ, the one who is seated at your right hand. Lord, we plead with you for it in his name. Amen.